Hello, and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. What can Jesus do for a helpless and hopeless person? Find out when we study Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 through verse 10. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who... Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him, with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people who saw him walking and praising God knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the Bible packs some of the most profound and marvelous information recorded in its pages into a rather concise, dense testimony as it reveals what the Spirit of God judged the pertinent information concerning the creation of the universe and God's relation to it. Although there are many curiosities that Moses makes no effort to satisfy, it is nearly possible to spend as much time studying those two chapters as all the rest of the book. And still, when one dedicates a whole year to the subject, he will feel, as one man expressed, that he has come with a teacup to draw from an ocean of truth. The book of Acts is much the same way. Its first two chapters describe the earthly inauguration of the new creation, the kingdom of Messiah, and packed into the carefully framed and selected information is a wealth of sayings and events that might well occupy our attention for a year or more. In fact, if you are listening to the podcast, you've been listening from the beginning and you feel like we're taking a slow and meticulous journey through the book, I might give you a little bit of consolation that at least you don't attend my home congregation where I spent a full year preaching on Acts 1 and 2. Uh, the Lord willing, will have completed our study in the book of Acts in about a year and a half. Now, we end up Acts 2 with a snapshot of the new community, the saved formed together by the Spirit of God into the congregation of Christ as they live out the will of King Jesus learned from the teachings of the apostles. 
Acts 2 and verse 46 mentions that a part of the new life of these followers of Jesus consisted of continuing daily with one accord in the temple. This agrees with Luke's testimony that after the ascension of Jesus, the disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God, Luke 24, 52-53. This temple, the temple mentioned throughout the whole of the New Testament, was the second temple, built by Zerubbabel to replace the temple of Solomon after its desolation in 586 B.C., Zerubbabel's temple was inferior in ornamentation, size, and glory to the original temple, as well as being arranged slightly differently, which caused those who built it to struggle with disappointment and occasioned the prophet Zechariah to plead that they despise not the day of small things, Zechariah 4 and verse 10, the small things being the edifice of which the prophet Haggai said, had they seen the original temple, this one would seem as nothing in their eyes, Haggai 2 and verse 3. Nevertheless, at its completion in 515 B.C., it was dedicated with great joy, according to Ezra chapter 6 and verse 16. And for a time, it became the symbol of the Lord's holiness and the religious center of life as the priesthood replaced the kingship in the post-exilic community of the Jews. The intertestamental period brought dark days for the second temple. It was desecrated in the most heinous ways imaginable by the wicked Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes and rededicated by Judas Maccabeus after the legendary Maccabean revolt in 164 B.C., an event still celebrated by the Jews through the festival of Hanukkah. The successors of Judas transformed the temple, however, into a political institution, infamous for its corruption and abuse in the time of Jesus. But when Herod the Great received the kingship of Judea from the Romans in 37 BC, he purposed to win the affection of his subjects by remodeling the temple into something larger and grander than ever before. In some ways, Herod's temple became a monument to Jewish hypocrisy, beautiful on the outside, but full of corruption within. Like the cursed fig tree, barren of fruit, and in the final analysis, nothing but leaves. In the end, Herod's temple was twice the size of Solomon's, and indeed one of the most magnificent structures in that part of the world. Although the world didn't have long to enjoy the wonder of it, it was destroyed by the Romans only six years after completing construction. The basic structure of the temple followed the original plans of the tabernacle given by God at Mount Sinai, which seems to have been the purest model of what God intended for the building and its function to be, since the writer of Hebrews, when explaining the symbolism God designed into it, passed over all the temples and returned to the tent set up under the direction of Moses. The temple itself, like the tabernacle, was a building surrounded by a fenced-in courtyard, or a walled-in courtyard in later periods, and internally divided into two parts, the holy place and the most holy place, separated by a thick veil or curtain. 
In the old tabernacle and in the days of Solomon, the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the most holy place and played a central role in the Day of Atonement ceremony when the blood of the sin offering was applied to its lid. During the first destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, the Ark disappeared. Some Jewish legends said that it was hidden in the mountains by Jeremiah, but regardless, Jeremiah himself declared that it would no longer be in the possession of Israel, Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 16. It was never housed in the second temple. In fact, the holiest of holies was completely empty. In the holy place, there was the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the golden altar, representing fellowship and prayer and the illumination of God's revelation to his people. The Bible tells us that these rooms signified the church, the true tabernacle, which the Lord made and not man, and heaven, the true holiest of holies, respectively. And that when the veil was ripped in two at the death of Jesus, it signified that the way to heaven was opened through his sacrifice. Heaven and earth were now united by Christ. In the courtyard where the people could gather, the priests would offer animal sacrifices on the bronze altar and wash themselves and their utensils of service in the laver. Eventually, in Solomon's temple, there were ten lavers, seemingly filled from what was called the molten sea, which held more than 10,000 gallons of water. And the apostles tell us that all of these things were symbolic of Jesus and the gospel. The high priest, the altar, and the sin offering were all pictures of Jesus' sacrificial death for us, according to Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 15. Paul calls baptism the washing, or literally, the laver of regeneration, Titus 3 and verse 5. However, the question that we seek to answer today is, why did the early disciples go to the temple every day? There are three possibilities suggested by Bible scholars and worthy of our attention. The first and most popular is that they were continuing their former devotions as Jews and had not yet broken from the religious practices of the Law of Moses. Therefore, they would go to the temple for prayer and to participate in the sacrificial worship of that system. Now, while it's certainly true, and Acts is going to bear it out many times, that the early Jewish Christians had a slow transition from several aspects of the law of Moses into the law of Christ. In fact, it was several years after Jesus nailed the old law to his cross, wiped it out and took it out of the way, as Paul says in Colossians 2 and 14, that the writer of Hebrews described the Mosaic covenant with its law, priesthood, and worship as becoming obsolete, growing old, and ready to vanish away, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. The Apostle Paul informs us that the revelation of God regarding the full nature of the Christian age was progressive, moving forward incrementally unto its completion, 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10, Ephesians 4 and 13. And certainly we see examples of the early disciples struggling through that growing understanding at times. However, we do wonder if one of the first realizations of the Christians would have been that the sacrificial system of the temple had been fulfilled in Jesus. 
During his earthly ministry, Jesus told the woman at Jacob's well that the consequence of his rule would be that God would no longer be worshipped in the Jerusalem temple, but in spirit and in truth, John 4, 21-24. He had denounced the corruption and abuse of the temple authorities that transformed the temple from the house of God into a house of merchandise and a den of thieves that devoured widows' livelihoods, John 2.16, Matthew 21.13, Luke 20.47-21-6. And toward the conclusion of his ministry, he announced to the disciples that some of them would see the day when the temple was destroyed and not one stone would be left upon another that would not be thrown down, Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. The early preaching of the apostles and evangelists seems to have reflected this, because the Jews accused preachers like Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against the temple by announcing Jesus' predictions of its destruction in Acts chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. And indeed, Stephen's sermon that followed the accusations makes it rather clear that he realized God had plans that far exceeded temples made with hands, Acts 7 and verse 48. Paul and Peter both declare in their writings, even before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, that the new temple of God was the church made of living stones, saints who were joined together into a spiritual house, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit, in which all the followers of Jesus function as a royal priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You can read about that in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. The Jerusalem temple was declared a mere symbol and shadow of the true in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performs the service perfect in regard to conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation, Hebrews 9, 9-10. And the writer says of those high priests and those sacrifices that they can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. While we cannot be certain how much of that was understood by the earliest disciples in the very beginning of the Christian era, the fact is there is nothing in the text, either in Luke 24 or Acts 2, or any of the subsequent records of the disciples' time spent in the temple that remotely indicates their participation in its sacrificial worship ceremonies. The second theory is that the Jerusalem Christians would gather in the temple for their public services as Christians and conduct worship in essentially the same way that churches would today, but using the temple as their building. 
This interpretation grows out of the idea that the original disciples would all meet together in a crowd of 3,000 or more that could not have possibly met in a private home. However, there is no evidence that such an assembly ever gathered for Christian worship. The idea of the thousands of Christians getting together every week for singing and teaching and a collection and prayer and the Lord's Supper is anachronistic. That is, it imposes something we see in our world, megachurches, on a time and place when it would have been essentially impossible. According to Acts chapters 3 through 5, the earliest and bitterest opponents of the Christians were the temple authorities. The idea that they would consistently tolerate a massive group worshiping Jesus less than two months after his crucifixion in their complex is beyond belief. And even if it can be believed by some people, there's no evidence that it happened. Outside of the temple, there would be no meeting place large enough to sustain the full crowd. Dr. Horatio Hackett says, The language used by Luke to describe their corporate action, we may suppose that they met in separate parties at different places, not necessarily all in a single place at once, the New American Commentary on Acts. Dr. Augustus Neander, one of the foremost Christian historians of all time, says that if they were not gathering in the temple, they met in small companies since their numbers were already too great for one chamber to hold them all. Dr. George Jacob says that the use of the singular number to describe the actions of the Christians simply shows that these practices were not limited to a few of them, but it does not mean that they were always in one place. Just as we would say all the people in the city were at church, meaning in the different churches of the place, whereas a stranger unused to this custom would say they were in the churches. That's in the book Ecclesiastical Polity of the New Testament. So the much more sustainable position is that the early disciples were meeting to worship Christ in private homes throughout Jerusalem and its outlying districts. The third possible explanation, and I think the best one, for why the disciples went to the temple every day is that they went there to bear witness or to preach the message of Jesus. <clears throat> now, this is the best explanation because it is precisely what Luke describes when he talks about the disciples in the temple. The temple would have been the perfect place for this work. It was the least sectarian location in all of Jerusalem. But we know that the Jews of that time were bitterly divided into religious parties. And the synagogues often represented this division. But all the Jews had one temple, one priesthood, one place for prayer and sacrifice. And that meant that in the temple, the message of Jesus could be spoken on even ground to everybody and not stigmatized by identification with one particular partisan theory or approach. Now we're going to begin in Acts chapter 3 and verse 1 where the Bible says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. According to their method of counting time, the ninth hour is what we would call 3 p.m. This was the time of evening sacrifice, so the temple complex would have been thronged with a huge mass of people. 
As Luke goes on to describe what happened, there's no mention of Peter and John actually participating in the evening sacrifice. If they did, there's no record of it, but instead, the occasion erupts into an opportunity for preaching and sharing the message of Jesus, which is precisely what the Bible says they do. Verse 2, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. Scholars are divided over the identity of the Beautiful Gate because that name is not used in the few extra-biblical descriptions we have of Herod's temple. Most likely, it was the gate at the entrance to the complex separating the court of Gentiles from the court of women. If this is the gate Luke means, it is reasonable why it would be called beautiful. It was made of Corinthian brass and overlain with panels of silver and gold, and when the sun would peek over the crest of Mount Olivet and send its shafts out over the landscape, when the light would hit the gate, it would explode in dazzling, shining glory. This gate separated the nations from the house of God. And this lame man, crippled from his mother's womb, laid to beg outside the gate, was a fit representation of the world, broken, helpless, without God, without hope, alienated from the blessings and promises of the covenants, as the Apostle Paul would say, in Ephesians 2 and verse 12, afar off from God's fellowship and incapable of taking one step toward him. The Bible says he was asking alms, that is, he was begging for charity. Without it, he would die. He was a man in desperate need of grace and mercy. Verse 4, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have. This is a strange thing to hear from Peter. Just a few verses previous, we learned about the supernatural charity and benevolence of the ancient Christians. Acts 2.44 says, Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Why withhold charity now from this man? As we read the apostolic writings, we're going to find that the collection taken by the saints was for the saints. As it says in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, it was not the practice of the churches to give money to the poor in their community. While individual Christian charity was instructed to extend to the least of these and to all men as one had opportunity, Matthew 25, 31-40, Galatians 6:10, the church used its collection for the care of needy Christians and the support of gospel preaching. And we don't know if that is why Peter said what he did here or if he simply meant that he didn't have any money with him. But after he explains that he has no money to give the beggar, he continues, But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
That formula in the name of Jesus Christ is familiar to us. In Acts 2.38, Peter said that sinners should be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. The same authority and power by which Jesus gave strength to the cripple's legs is the authority and power Jesus has placed in the ordinance of baptism with the promise that the one who believes and is baptized will be saved. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 6, Jesus proved that he had power on earth to forgive sins when he told a crippled man to take up his bed and walk. And here Jesus, through the apostles, demonstrates his power from heaven to give the same grace and to work the same restoration. The miracles of Jesus seem always not only to confirm and establish the divine origin of his mission and the truth of his teaching, but also to reflect his spiritual purposes in the lives of mankind. Jesus raised the dead and thereby showed his power to give life to those who are dead in sin, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2.1. Jesus cast demons out of people and thereby showed his power to release those who are in bondage to and under the dominion of Satan. Jesus cleansed lepers and thereby showed his power to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as the Apostle John says in 1 John 1 and verse 7. Jesus made the blind to see and the deaf to hear and thereby showed his power to make us hear and understand the things of God and to see with enlightened eyes of understanding what is the truth. Ephesians 1 and verse 18. And Jesus caused the lame and paralyzed to walk, thereby showing his power to make us walk, to live as God would have us live, Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Verse 7 continues, And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Isaiah the prophet foretold that when Messiah came, the inauguration of the new age through him would be signaled when the lame would leap like a deer. I wonder if people thought of that passage when they saw this taking place. Verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This was a true miracle. That bears stating because there are many false signs and lying wonders, fraudulent charades that are passed off and claimed as miracles to the gullible of the world today. Now, I believe in every miracle that the Bible records, but I am exceedingly skeptical of the miraculous claims of some religious parties and preachers and ministry organizations today. In fact, I don't believe that they're real. I believe that they're fakes and phonies. I believe that these people are defrauding and deceiving. Now, the differences should be obvious enough. 
Today, some preacher will come into town and he'll rent out a great big civic center or a hall and he'll fill it with thousands of people. And during the music and the excitement and energy, up hobbles some pitiful looking man on crutches. Nobody knows him, but he looks so pathetic and weak and sickly. The preacher comes and waves his hands over him, maybe slaps him around a time or two, and the man throws the crutches away and dances on down the aisle and out the back door, never to be seen again. And the people look and say, it's a miracle. Well, how do we know? We don't know that man. We don't know if he was even really crippled. And I'm not being a conspiracy theorist when I bring up things like this. The evidence says it's all a sham and a show. Hundreds of these so-called faith healers have been exposed as frauds who use plants and actors to dupe and deceive people. But that certainly wasn't the case here. This man was lame from birth. He had never walked in more than 40 years, according to Acts 4 and 22. His muscles were atrophied and his legs emaciated so that in order for him to stand, the Bible says they had to suddenly burst with strength. And that happened so that immediately he became a veritable gymnast, somersaulting and uh, flipping and flying through the air. He was known to the whole city of Jerusalem because he was brought daily to the gate of the temple. The Bible says that they knew it was he who sat bagging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. We have something spectacular in the miracles of the Bible. We have true supernatural events that can stand up to the test of intense scrutiny and criticism. I want you to think about what all of this means. Christ was no longer on the earth in person, but Christ was showing himself alive that day. It was Jesus who healed that man from his heavenly throne. It was in Jesus' name that he rose up and walked. Thomas Aquinas was one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time. His works on theology are still studied by virtually all serious Bible students and moral or religious philosophers. He was trusted and highly esteemed by Pope Innocent IV, who counted him a very dear friend. And one day the Pope invited him to tour his palatial residence. As they passed by a room filled with riches and money that was being counted out by the church treasurers, the Pope remarked to Thomas, You see that the church is no longer in an age when she can say, Silver and gold have I none. Aquinas solemnly replied, It is true, Holy Father. Nor can she now say to the lame man, Rise up and walk. Thomas Aquinas saw that the church of his day had gained the riches and wealth she lacked in her infancy, but she had lost the power of God. The world does not need money. They might think they do, but they don't need money. Money wouldn't help. This world that is 
hopeless, helpless, blind, deaf, corrupted, dead, enslaved by the devil, crippled, needs what can only be given in the name of Jesus Christ. I believe that the Bible teaches those gifts of supernatural healing that we read about in texts like this are no longer active in the church on earth. But in Jesus' name, we can offer the world the greater glory they represented. I cannot say to a crippled man, rise up and walk. But I can say to a sinner, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Be buried with Christ and rise to walk in newness of life. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is part of the Growing Biblical Studies program of Tulsa. To learn more, visit our website, bspoftulsa.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and